you're following along in your pew Bibles, our text comes to us from the 21st chapter of the Gospel according to John. Most scholars agree that this 21st chapter was added as an epilogue to the original Gospel sometime after its first publication. And your Bible probably shows a space between the end of chapter 20 and the beginning of chapter 21. If you read the end of chapter 20, you will see that it offers a right good ending to it. But the church felt like, as did the writers of the text, that an epilogue was needed. And for that, I am grateful. Beginning in the first verse of chapter 21. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee. And he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach But the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children or lads, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the lake. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net by himself to shore, full of large fish, 153 of them, and though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you, because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, then feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Then tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Then feed my sheep. 
Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. After he said this to him, he said, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. For my money, it's got to be the best line in all of scripture. I'm going fishing. The only line that could beat it would be, of course, I'm going to play golf. But since there was no dadgum, as Coach Williams would say, game of golf back then, fishing will have to do. Peter wasn't just talking about a fishing pole and a can of worms, of course. He was talking about getting back to work, taking his nets down to the sea and casting them so that he could make a living. When Jesus had called them, Peter, Andrew, as brothers by that same sea of Galilee three years earlier, had called them by name, it says that they left everything that they were doing and chose to follow Jesus. It leaves us wondering what could have been in the tonal intonation, the the way that Jesus said it, that would create such a transformational moment that they would leave everything and follow. And that they did for three years. They stopped fishing for, well, fish and started learning how to fish for people. Those three years, Jesus taught them about compassion and love especially for the outcasts in life who really never had a chance. He taught them about the Torah, the law, and the 116, excuse me, 113 laws within it, and summed it all up by saying, it can be said to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and your neighbor as yourself. That is the whole of the law and the commandments. He taught them about forgiveness, about how hard it is to forgive others, and about how hard it is to receive forgiveness from others and from God. That it comes with a cost always, and for Jesus it cost him his life on a cross. That that, that even still that they needed to keep practicing it over and over, practice being forgiven and practice forgiving seven times 70 if need be, until it finally dawned on them that whatever it was that had happened to cause so much pain and anguish would evaporate under the grace of God. What he taught them about, of course, was God, the kingdom of God, which is not so much about what happens to us when we die and go to heaven as it is about that presence of God now in our lives when we are most fully alive. That's what he taught them. And he taught them not only in his words, but in his life as he lived that out day by day. Three years, and then he left them. He didn't just walk out on them. He didn't just pack his bags and throw them into the backseat of the car and drive off. He did the best he could to prepare them for this inevitability. In John's gospel, there are 21 chapters. Five of them, five alone, are devoted to Jesus' preparation time 
with his disciples alone called the Farewell Discourse. He begins it with the Lord's Supper. Then he took a towel, girded himself with it, a bowl of water, knelt at his disciples, those astonished disciples' feet, and began to wash them. Peter, of course, was the first one to object. And Jesus says, Peter, you still don't have any idea what I'm about. He shared with them how much he loved them and how much he hoped that they would follow in their newly washed and baptized feet in the same footsteps that Jesus had taken. He promised them that he was going to prepare a place for them. You know that text in John 14. We read it at funerals. In my father's house are many mansions that you cannot go now, but I'm going to prepare a place for you where you will soon follow. And then finally, after telling them that he was indeed going to die and that they would stray like lost sheep and that they, especially Peter, would deny him point blank that in the end he would be raised. And the last thing he did in this five-chapter discourse was pray for them. He took them in his heart and in his soul and he lifted them up to God and he prayed for them. He was preparing them. It's hard to imagine what they must have been thinking all they had given. They had left it all and followed him for three years and now, vamos. They had learned and grown and believed, hoping that indeed he was the one who would redeem Israel the true Messiah who would come like the Davidic king and bring Israel, restore Israel back to the place that it had been at its, at its zenith in David's time. That's what they hoped in. And now, gone. The death of a parent early in life comes close to this or the death of a spouse. You're, you just don't have enough time left. There's still work to do. There are things that need to be said that haven't been said. There, there are places that need to be forgiven. There are misunderstandings that need to be cleaned up. We, we need time to restore and reconcile. But death comes and leaves us empty. I just wanted to say I love you one more time. I have heard so many people share too fast, too fast. And the next day he was gone, and they scattered just like he said they would, and Peter, well, all of them really, all of us really, Peter stood beside that charcoal fire outside the courtyard and denied him three times, just as the cock crowed, just like Jesus had said. Peter, upon whom the church would be built, the rock, was left feeling like a spineless sponge, apparently, for the rest of his life. Then Easter. It was an enormously glorious day, full of mystery. He's not in the tomb. He appeared to several of them. Easter. The church was packed. The music was splendid. The choirs unbelievable. We even gathered and sang the Alleluia Chorus. Everyone left at Easter high as a kite. But then, Monday, what do you do after Easter? 
you go back to work. Easter never lasts long enough either. You go back to work. The next week or weeks we call Low Sunday. Our attendance today is approximately a third of what it was on Easter Sunday. That is not unusual. It's true every single year in almost every single church that I know of. There's this giant high, and then it's like they say about new marriages, this amazing wedding that happens, all the, all the interest of the community, all the financing that goes into it, all the planning, and then you go off on your honeymoon and come back, and what? Toilet seats that are left up, towels on the floor, dirty dishes in the kitchen, like the wife is now your new mother. It's work. And so there's this apparent letdown, this post-nuptial depression that comes. Same with Easter. The 21st chapter of John makes it clear. After these things, when they're back to normal, when they're back to work, After these things, seven of them were sitting around in a funk. So Peter stands up and brushes the past off of him and says, I'm going back to work. What else can I do? And they gathered themselves up and went with him. We know the story. You try to start over, but you can't. You try to push the past out of your life as far back as possible, but it still comes back to us. Maybe at 4 o'clock in the morning, maybe when you're driving down the highway, who knows when. We cannot get away from it. No matter how busy we are, it intrudes. It just doesn't go away any more than my father could get away from World War II. When he came back, he jumped right back into fraternity life, then graduated, then got a job, then got married, then had four children, then worked his rear end off to make ends meet. Year after year after year, the busiest man, they didn't call him Go-Go Goyer for nothing. And when I would ask him, Dad, tell me about the time that you were pinned down in casino in World War II, he would say to me, you're just not ready which meant that he was just not ready. But it was there, and it took him 50 years to get ready to tell us about it before he could finally put it to rest. That's why this chapter, this 21st chapter of John, this gospel chapter, this epilogue, added later is such good news because it's later that we need it. Later, when we were ready to face our unfinished business like Peter, full of remorse. They're out on the lake all night. They catch nothing. They see this stranger on the beach. It's one of the thin places. And he says, lads, you've caught nothing. Throw the net to the other side. They do. They pull it up so full they can't bring it in. One disciple notices it's it's Jesus, our Lord, and Peter 
throws on his overalls because to stand naked before Jesus would be an offense and swims the hundred yards to shore. He wasn't too good a swimmer, if you remember correctly, when he sank like a stone earlier. Yet here he is mustering up the right strokes to do so, and he makes it there, and he finds Jesus by the campfire, cooking fish and bread. The others drag the boat in with the net of 153 fish. I always wonder, who counted them? Peter runs out in a superhero kind of way, pulls the whole thing in. He's now so full of of power and strength at the presence of Christ. And after breakfast, Jesus turns to him, to Peter he turns to, not the rest, but to Peter Because it was Peter whose burden was just as heavy as that net of fish that he just had drug in. And he said to him, Peter, do you love me? Not do you believe in me. Not do you believe in the virgin birth. Not do you accept me as your Lord and Savior. He asked the only question that can be asked when a restoration of relationship is needed. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. And then he gave him a job. Then feed my sheep. Okay? Peter, do you love me? Really? Yes, Lord. Then tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? And then he got it. He got it. The campfire... Three times he's asked the question, oh yeah, oh yeah, I denied him three times, three times I'm affirmed, three times I can come back, three times I've been restored. It dawned on him. I can't help but think that that terminology, it dawned on him, has to come out of this morning's text. The chapter is an epilogue because in the kingdom of God there always is one. The story doesn't end for Peter or for us. Jesus is waiting for us in this world or in the next. A presence of love and forgiveness and also a calling of vocation one more time to do for everyone else what Jesus has done for us. I was recently speaking with an older man who, uh, around Christmas, after being married for 60 years, had a terrible automobile accident. He was driving. Apparently, he ran off the side of the road. The car turned over. His wife was killed. He was in the hospital for six weeks. All he could talk about was his sense of guilt and responsibility. 60 years of marriage. And it ends like this, he said. My prayer for him is that in this life, sooner rather than later, or if not, then in the next, he will know what this epilogue from John is all about. And then in the same way as for Peter, he will be washed clean of his need for forgiveness. Washed absolutely clean. And for all of us, Maybe not this dramatically, but 
all of us, when we admit it, carry such a heavy burden of things that we have done that we wish we hadn't or not done that we wish we had. And the older we get, the heavier the burden because the more the things are that we haven't done or have done. But it doesn't have to be that way. Week after week, Jesus stands before us, if we have ears, with an offer of restoration and reconciliation and rehabilitation. He offers us a meal to share and a word of forgiveness. Do you love me? And the condition is then love others. Tend my sheep. Do to them what I have done for you. Take care of the poor, the broken, the prisoner, the immigrant, the outcast. Do you love me? Then accept that you are set free. Free from your guilt and shame. Released, restored, forgiven, and get back to work doing for them what I have done for you. Forgive them as many times as it takes. How many times? For Peter, it was three. For the rest of us, it's usually seven times 70. He was right. Either way, in the kingdom of God, it is a wash. 